Lauren. Mike. Lauren, do you think billionaires are going to rescue our planet from the climate crisis? <laughs> is that is that a trick question? Yeah, they're totally going to do it. They're going to do it from their yachts and their private jets. Or PJs, yeah. as they said on Succession <laughs> the other night. PJs. <laughs> it's hard to imagine, but maybe that's what we need to do. We have to imagine our way out of the climate crisis. Uh, so maybe we should turn to one of the most celebrated modern writers of science fiction. I mean, I'm game to try it if you are. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Gadget Lab. I'm Michael Calori, a senior editor at Wired. And I'm Lauren Good, a senior writer at Wired. We're also joined this week by Wired senior correspondent Adam Rogers. Adam, welcome back to the show. It is always a pleasure to be one among several seniors. Nice. <laughs> well, it's good to have you, senior sir. Um, we've got a special show for you this week. We're going to play for you a conversation that Adam had with the acclaimed sci-fi novelist Neil Stevenson. This conversation took place at our Rewired conference last week. You probably know Neil Stevenson from his books like Snow Crash, Cryptonomicon, or the three novel Baroque Cycle. My personal favorite is the long essay in the beginning was The Command Line. His newest book, Termination Shock, comes out this week, and it's about a near future where the world is nearly ruined by the effects of climate change. So Adam, you talked with Neil Stevenson recently for a feature-length profile you wrote for the magazine, which people can also read online at Wired.com, and you talked to him just last week at the Rewired conference, which we're going to listen to in just a minute, but give us some of the highlights here. You guys talked a lot about climate change in both of these chats, so... Neil thinks we're all just doomed, right? You know, I have to admit, it was hard for me in both of our conversations to extract from Neil what he thinks the outcome is going to be. For somebody who writes speculative fiction, science fiction, he, he's, he's kind of cagey. Mm -hmm. The book, the premise of the book is that a, a billionaire uh, attempts without asking a government's permission what's called solar geoengineering. He tries to basically fix climate change by shooting millions of tons of sulfur into the atmosphere to cool off the earth. And that has tremendous uh, geopolitical consequences as well as tremendous um, ecological consequences. Um, but when, when, I, when I have asked Neil, well, do you think that would happen? And do you think that's a good thing? He sort of says, no, nah, I don't think it would really be a billionaire. This isn't really a tech billionaire. He's an oil billionaire. And I'm, I'm not trying to stake out a position whether it would be good. I'm just trying to kind of say it's probably going to happen and what would happen next. Hmm. So that's I will admit I'm sort of surprised at that, especially because um, a lot of Neil's work is pretty trenchant criticism of technology and its practitioners, especially for someone who is so popular with a particular breed of technologist. I mean, he's he's like a patron saint of Silicon Valley, mm -hmm. you know, and, and mm -hmm. so for and I think a lot of his books, people forget how much um, it's not quite parody, but but how uh, skeptical he can be. Certainly Snow Crash which was mm -hmm. his first kind of big book, 1992, three, um, where he invented the word metaverse. But it wasn't like, a, and someday people were going to use this as a great app and make a lot of money. It was like, <laughs> you know, he was cautioning against um, exactly what seems to be happening. So it was, it was it's been very interesting. And, and you'll hear in the, in the conversation where he kind of both does come down and then won't come down on, on um, whether we're doomed and what to do about it. Yeah, it was interesting because, and, and the folks will hear this shortly, but at the top of the conversation, you ask him about the metaverse and the commercialization of it, and you read a passage from Snow Crash, and I think your intonation is a little bit like, hey, you wrote this dystopian thing, and now what do you make of this? And he actually said 
he was fairly neutral on the idea of the metaverse when when he wrote about it. Yeah, I mean, it's look, every reader takes away something different from a piece of art. Uh, but uh, I, I didn't feel like that book was neutral then. I don't think it's neutral now. Um, it, you know, <laughs> he, um, he Neil's interesting because he's one of the few people who has both written for Wired and been written about by Wired. Um, and one of the stories, one of the articles that he wrote for someone else in the Wired republished was about 10 years ago. He, he put out this call kind of famously at the moment to other science fiction writers where he said, you know, science fiction has become too dystopian, too grim, too post-apocalyptic. And we should hearken back to our golden age roots and, uh, and, and essentially pitch um, big technological and scientific solutions to the existential problems that humanity now faces, like climate change. Um, and that's a, that was a big ask, you know, for somebody as important as he is in that community and to, to the wired world, um, that he was sort of saying, science fiction hasn't been doing its job. We have to think bigger. The, the, the engineers, the technologists, the billionaires, the entrepreneurs aren't thinking big enough. We have to do that big thinking for them so that they'll be as inspired by us as, as, as you know, we were by Arthur C. Clarke and Isaac Asimov or whatever, you know, and those guys are all problematic for other reasons too, but, but you see what I mean. Um, but then when, when I've tried and others have, have asked him about this too, you know, as he's done publicity for the book um, to say, is this what you meant? Did, is, is this the kind of big thing technology that you're hoping will inspire people? He still, he, he will still say that he was trying very explicitly to get at how complicated the issue was and not take a position, but just say, it'll probably, someone's probably going to do it. What would that mean? And how do we deal with it then? Um, which, I don't know, maybe I should ask the question better. <laughs> well, you know, you did a great job of asking questions, uh, particularly somebody like Neil, who, you know, we've all been reading his books since we were teenagers. And as you said, his philosophy has sort of permeated our daily lives, whether or not we realize it. Um, it must be kind of cool to interview somebody who's like fully wormed their way inside of your brain. Oh, well, that's a whole other thing. I mean, yes, <laughs> I, I, um, <laughs> not only have I read all people have people ask me whether I like the book or whether I think the book is good. And, and the only thing I can answer is I, I can't answer that because there's no, what am I going to do? Not read it. Like I've read every yeah. one of his books since 1992, you know, like I still remember the moment that I, the book I showed him in this interview that I held up to the camera was the copy that I bought because I was like cutting my summer job to go to the bookstore and picked the thing up. I was like, what's this? And you read the first, you know, the first 30, 40 pages of Snow Crash or some of the best, it's like one of the best leads in the history of science fiction. Mm -hmm. um, it's like, what the hell is this? You know, and I have read ever since that. It's like, it's like when people ask me whether I think the new season of Doctor Who is any good or something. It's like, well, what am I gonna, there's no answer. I'm not, gonna, I'm not gonna not watch it. So it doesn't really matter, you know? Um, I don't know if it's gonna be for you, but it's for me. Right. right. And, and in fact, like Neil was one of the first science fiction writers I ever interviewed when I was just starting out as a journalist and was talking to science fiction writers about kind of the, the culture of nerdiness that was getting built in the 90s. He was one of the first people I, I was so excited to get to call. So it was sort of, God, I was about to say it kind of bookended my career. I hope that's not right. <laughs> well, yeah, we hope, we hope you stick around a little bit longer. <laughs> Yeah, I feel like what you've just described is goals for this podcast too. That people are like, "Well, what am I going to do?" Not yeah, how would that work? It? It's Neil Stevenson with Adam <laughs> Rogers and Michael Calori and that Lauren person. We have, I mean, we have. I, to I don't see to people it. figuring out how to not listen to this. No. All right. Well, we do have to listen to it, so we're going to take a break. <laughs> and when we come back from the break, we're going to hear Adam talking to author Neil Stevenson, recorded at Rewired earlier this month. 
Hi, welcome to another session on Rewired. I'm Adam Rogers, a senior correspondent um, at the publication, the magazine and the website. And I am uh, delighted to welcome uh, one of my favorite science fiction writers, um, Neil Stevenson. Thank you for being with us, Neil. We really appreciate it. Hi, Adam. Good to be here. So um, Neil has a uh, new book coming out next week called Termination Shock. It's always Tuesday for some reason. It's an ancient uh, <laughs> ritual. So that's mostly what we're going to talk about, but I want to, um, I want to start with a question that I warned you I was going to ask about to begin with and um, that everyone has been asking you about for the last couple of weeks, at least. So I have, um, this is my 1992 copy of Snow Crash. Um, oh, that's the, a beauty. The, this is the, the classic, the one that I picked up uh, the, that summer um, when I would go to the bookstore to hide from the job that I had. Um, mm -hmm. Uh, at lunch hour, and there's this uh, there's this paragraph on page 22. After you've spent a couple pages describing the experience of what we would today probably call virtual reality, of wearing a, a set of goggles that are, images are being beamed in onto the screens of the goggles, and stereo sound being beamed to the headphones. The main character's name is Hero. Hero's not actually here at all. He's in a computer-generated universe that his computer is drawing onto his goggles and pumping into his earphones. In the lingo, this imaginary place is known as the metaverse. Um, this is your your coinage. Uh, sorry to read this back to you. I know you know the book um, better than most would. Um, but now the metaverse has been adopted, um, not perhaps as the caution maybe that you meant, but as the next big business opportunity in um, in social media, at least. And I know that, that, that you're not involved in the business side of that, but I do want to know what you feel like about whether these folks, I don't know, read the book mm -hmm. before they called something the metaverse? How does that feel for you to have that coinage? Well, the uh, the overall b tone of the book, uh, as many people have pointed out, is kind of broadly dystopian, although it's meant to be dystopian with a sense of humor. It's, it's, both, it's both dystopian and kind of satirizing the dystopian uh, tropes of the, the genre at the same time. Um, and so when people are arguing about the metaverse in the last few weeks and months, uh, there's a tendency for the more skeptical people to, to point to that dystopian quality of the book as, um, as saying something or meaning something about, uh, about the metaverse as being currently worked on by active tech companies. Um, so I get it. Um, I think that in the book, the metaverse per se is not neither dystopian nor utopian. I mean, it's a thing that exists in that world and um, people use it uh, frequently as a way to sort of step out of uh, the possibly kind of gloomy dystopian lives that they might be living. Uh, that's certainly what Hero is described as doing in the passage that you're reading. He's in real life living in a storage container by the airport, but um, uh, in the metaverse, uh, he gets to have a more full and beautiful experience. Um, so I think that the metaverse as described in the book is kind of neutral. Uh, it's neither dystopian nor uh, utopian. Um, that catters is what people do with the idea. I wanna, we're gonna talk about that, um, the neutrality or dystopian utopian idea, I think more because it's. I think it's important to termination shock, too. 
Um, but I also, you know, I, you can tell it's science fiction in Snowcrash because um, they've actually, somebody has actually built housing near the airport um, for Hero to live in, yeah. which of course doesn't happen in real life. Nobody has, a, has that now. He can afford a place to live. Um, so clearly uh, your predictive abilities are were waning. Um, but Imperfect, I, so, yeah. <laughs> that's right. Um, your termination shock uh, is broadly a, about climate change, about global warming, and and about mm -hmm. a, a, a billionaire um, decides to attempt solar geoengineering. This really aggressive program of shooting sulfur into the atmosphere to try to cool off a planet that is that, that in, in in termination shock is well past the point where places are are not livable for humans. Just thinking about as you mentioned, dystopias and utopias. Is it your intent to 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 pitch that in a way as, as what, what ought to happen or should happen or, or, or are you, are you, are you aspiring there to some neutrality as well? I mean, what, what's the, what's the, what's your hope that people will take away from this vision of like climate change is happening and now somebody has got to do something about it. The overall tone uh, of the book, if you read the book <clears throat> um, all the way through is, is reasonably balanced. Um, so, uh, at the beginning of the book, um, the program you're describing is already sort of a fait accompli. Not everyone knows about it, but uh, it's about to start running. And so most of the book is really on the topic of how people around the world from different countries and different walks of life respond to what this guy uh, is doing. And um, and so in the course of that, they talk about the pros and cons of um, of this kind of geoengineering, uh, in what I hope is a reasonably well-informed way, they're they're you know intelligent people who have access to good information, and so they're uh, they're able to uh, to uh, anticipate the possible problems that that are going to result from that kind of of intervention, um, and to uh, uh, make their own decisions as to um, how they should respond to it. Um, so I hope I've depicted all of that in a reasonably balanced and realistic way. The particular scenario in which a, an individual billionaire decides to do this, um, I think uh, probably is not super realistic um, for various reasons, um, but um, it made for a good story. Uh, I, I think that if, if this kind of intervention does happen, it's likely to be a government somewhere that just decides um, it's in its own national interest to go ahead and pull the trigger on this. But but let me, I, I wasn't trying to um, put you on the spot for saying well, that it should be neutral. Part of the thing that you've done just by talking about it is saying like, yes, climate change is real. Yes, it's an issue, you know, it's a problem. And, and you know, where we sit right now with COP26 going on, the large international program, um, of uh, uh, you know of trying to address climate change, while there are still people who don't think it's really a problem, or who don't think that it's feasible to do anything about it, or are willing to sacrifice some number of some amount of coastline and some number of people to it, you know th this book takes that as a given that like this is an issue, it's, mm -hmm. it's serious, but but I, and, and what and geoengineering is a controversial you know solution or approach to it, but I am you know when when you say it's neutral, I, I'm just I'm struck by like ten years ago you wrote an article, why ran it too? You're one of the few people who who's both written for Wired and had Wired write about, um, where, you, where you said that, uh, you know, that in the golden age of science fiction, nominally the sort of 30s, 40s, 50s, science fiction writers wrote these big idea books with, with, with big technological solutions and that, and that now that those are what's needed um, 
well, what you said, the imperative to develop new technologies and implement them on heroic scale no longer seems like the childish preoccupation of a few nerds with slide rules. It's time for the SF writers, the science fiction writers, to start pulling their weight and supplying big visions that make sense. So is this a big vision? Is this one of those, you describe them as hieroglyphs? Uh, yeah, it, it, it could be. I mean, it's the, um, the situation that we're in, uh, I think sometimes isn't fully understood even by people who think of themselves as environmentally aware and staying in touch with uh with what's going on with with climate um the parts per million of co2 in the air is now well above 400 uh that's the highest it's been for millions of years and um it's up from 200 and something at before the industrial revolution so uh, it's a big change, and um, uh, the um, various efforts that are being made are are great, uh, and we absolutely have to do those things. Um, but I'm not sure if everyone totally gets the fact that even if we brought emissions of new carbon dioxide down to zero, um, which is something that cannot happen realistically for several decades into the future, that wouldn't reduce the amount of CO2 that's already in the atmosphere. It, it takes something like a million years for natural processes to bring that number back down to the pre-industrial revolution level. And so, um, so we need carbon capture on an enormous scale in order to achieve that. Um, and, uh, and I hope well, we have to do that. You know, that's, that's the big solution that we really need to implement and it truly is a solution in the sense that it would get rid of the underlying problem um, and kind of undo the mistake that we made by putting all that co2 into the atmosphere in the first place um, i think that between now and when those um, carbon capture programs uh, actually begin to make a positive impact some really bad things are going to happen uh, geopolitically um, as the result of all that CO2 in the air. I think we're going to see uh, mass fatality events um, when the weather gets too hot and humid uh, for, for, to support human life in certain areas. Uh, we're going to see, um, we're going to see a large rise in sea level that's going to uh, create um, refugee problems and resulting uh, famine and war and strife. Um, and so, um, uh, these kinds of, uh, uh, it's like solar geoengineering schemes, um, are something that, that could be considered as a sort of tourniquet. It's like putting a tourniquet on a, uh, uh, a grievously wounded limb in the emergency room. You don't want to leave the tourniquet right. on. Um, but uh, it it may be it may be necessary uh, to save a person's life uh, in the meantime. Because what you when we talked um, for the story that I that I wrote about the book, you one of the things that you said was that um, there was a there's a reticence, even maybe even especially among progressives among the left to to mm -hmm. to have technological solutions and like science fiction, you know, as a genre, you, there's there's some expectation. I don't know that's totally right, that that a technological solution will be sort of the denouement or the the inciting event, in your case, in the case of Termination Shock, for the story. Mm -hmm. But there's this concern that like, that any technological solution here is is worse than a stopgap. It's a it's it's a, it's moral hazard. 
You, right. And so I don't know if that's something that you can ask a, a science fiction story to get you out of. It maybe just makes the science fiction story interesting. I, I don't mean to put you on the spot to solve global warming so that's, much that's as try right. <laughs> to try to figure out like what the role of the of a of a of the fiction writers and even of the journalists, if you have any advice, is to try to deal with this you know existential issue. Well. Uh... Uh, I mean, you, it, it begins with a story in the case of um, a journalistic piece. And then uh, what matters is where the story goes and what the characters do. So um, I guess, as I mentioned before, most of Termination Shock is about um, how people respond when, um, uh, when one person uh, does decide to intervene in, in the global climate. Because in a weird way, the, the, the surprising thing in, in real life is the people who decide not to intervene, right? Is that with climate change, yeah. the people who don't believe it's an issue who don't or who waste time dealing with it. And even with, you know, with the pandemic, the shocking thing about COVID-19 was more the people who, for political or other reasons, said it wasn't a problem. It's not a big deal. I mean, that's sort of a surprising m moment, I think, for... yeah. Even after Trump and everything else, I did not see that coming. The idea that we could have a uh, a pandemic um, that, I mean, by this point has killed going on twice as many Americans as died in World War II um, and in a much shorter span of time. Um, and, um, and yet there's still a sizable number of people uh, in this country who, who don't even think it's real. So uh, when when the pandemic started, um, it didn't occur to me that that, that could ever happen. Um, but uh, the polarization of opinion and the ability of people to live in walled off kind of uh, bubbles uh, is has advanced to the point where, um, you know, even th there have been many cases reported of people who are literally dying of, of COVID lying there in the hospital bed being intubated, insisting with, with literally their last words that it's all a hoax. Uh, so, so when I see that, and then I look at uh, climate change, um, climate change, you know, far, far more abstract and difficult scientific concept to, to understand, even for scientifically kind of sophisticated people than, uh, than a pandemic that kills people all around you. And the consequences are much farther away and, and much more abstract than, um, having a, a, a friend or a neighbor or a loved one get sick or die of this disease. And so, um, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm have, you have to be pretty realistic, which means right. pessimistic about, uh, about the, the possibility that large numbers of, of people are, are gonna believe in uh, human created climate change to the point where they would all get together and support um, expensive and difficult and complicated measures to reduce emissions, to set up carbon capture facilities on a massive scale or what have you. Let me, there's a, a question from one of the folks watching that's relevant here. And so I, I want to go to that some of the time we have remaining. This is um, Andre from Russia says yesterday, um, the one time Apple designer, industrial designer, Johnny Ive was on Rewired and, and was talking about Steve Jobs, in that case, being a, a leader for change, uh, you know, and that's one thing when it comes to running a company, especially in technology. But Andre asks, what do you think the role is of individual leadership here 
if there are specific individuals who you think are particularly important versus that collective action that you were just yeah. talking about? Well, we've gotten into a really weird place in, um, in how things work in our society where um, billionaires are the answer to everything. 50 years ago, if something big needed to happen, we would look to the government or we would look to private industry um, to, to take care of it for us somehow. Um, and uh, um, now the, the expectation that a lot of people just seem to have is that uh, if there's a big thing that needs to be done, um, then a billionaire needs to step in and handle it for us. And that is kind of a new thing in, in the world. And um, seems to be where we are. And that, that's why I chose that particular trope as the basis for, for termination shock. But you, through your work and through the kind of things that, you, that you've done, even when you're not writing, you've met some of these guys. They're, I think, all or almost all men. In your estimation of, of, of the, I don't know which billionaire I should be talking about specifically, in your estimation, is that, are they up to that task? Is the, the it's, it has seemed to me that the kind of thing, the kind of personality one has to have to acquire more than a billion dollars may preclude helping people who haven't acquired more than a billion dollars. I wonder if you agree. It turns out there's a lot of billionaires besides the the famous ones. Plus, like, <laughs> I, I mean, there's like Dessa billionaires. You know, we, we tend to look at the centimillionaires, the, you know, people who only have, you know, $12 billion or something like that, that we never hear about. And I think a lot of people who do have that kind of money lying around actually do make efforts to, um, to apply that money in a beneficial way. They're not all uh, sociopaths. They're, they're um, you know, they, they have the same uh, kind of emotional life as anyone else. And so why wouldn't you want to, um, to apply, uh, apply that money in a way that you think is going to make things better? Um, in, in the particular case of termination shock, I had to posit the existence of a centimeter or a, a decimillionaire that nobody's really heard of uh, in Texas, who comes from a background in the oil, gas and mining industry and sort of parlayed that into a chain of gas stations. Um, so I'm kind of bending over backwards, in other words, to make it obvious that my fictional billionaire is not meant to be uh, a thinly veiled depiction of any real uh, billionaire. Um, but he, uh, he does what he does. He has a, a story for why he does this that is uh, based on a kind of economic argument. And he's got investments in Houston real estate that's being, the value of which is being depressed by uh, rising sea level. And he figures that uh, by, by implementing this scheme, uh, it will, um, the cost of implementing it will, will be more than covered by the rise in value of his real estate portfolio. There's a um, Dave from Ontario asked this, and it's sort of along the lines that we that we've been talking about about whether whether science fiction writers predict the future, or whether uh, whether writing about things in science fiction kind of gives people some guidelines or rails and ways that they can be thinking about whether science fiction opens spaces for new way of thinking about the future, or whether it is in some senses limiting because it it sets certain guide points. Mm. I, I don't, but. I, when we talked, you 
you you said something really interesting to me, and it stuck with me um, that that you're not totally sure that fiction is supposed to have that that role as social to to in, to in, in, induce or incite social change. And I, I you know I don't know if it does either, but do do you think that science fiction has had the the role of guiding what sort of a future you know, the United States looks for or the world looks for, and does it still if it ever did? People can point to uh, a particular scenario and say, oh, let's do that. You know, trying to get a large number of engineers and uh, sort of tech workers to pull together in a unified way and do a thing um, can be surprisingly difficult. And a lot of energy is spent inside of corporations with PowerPoint presentations solely for the purpose of making sure that all of the engineers are sort of doing the same thing, you know, in an efficient way. And... Uh, I believe that there are some cases where um, if you see a, the, a description of the final end result written out in a compelling way in a book or whatever, you can just sort of hand that, that book out to people. They say, oh, okay, I see what we're doing. It kind of decentralizes that, the, the process of getting people to work together. Right. Well, um, I think that's a good place to... Um, to start to think about wrapping up, yeah. but Neil, thank you, thank you for doing this. I, I really sure. appreciate it. It's great to have another um, to have another book from you, um, and uh, it was a great read. My pleasure. Have, but, oh, all right, all right, thanks, folks. Um, I'm Adam Rogers. Neil Stevenson. We've been talking to. There's more Rewired coming. Thanks for being with us. We appreciate it. Adam, that was a great talk. Thank you. Yeah, I, th I thought he was terrific. It was a lot of fun. All right. Well, let's take another break, and we'll come back with our recommendations. All right, welcome back. Adam, what is your recommendation? All right, I have two, but I promise to go faster than I usually do because I know I always burn <laughs> this segment. Uh, nice. One is um, if you're in a place where you are where you qualify, if you uh, are an adult and if, you, if there are restrictions on the qualifications where you are, uh, get your COVID vaccine booster. Now's a good time for it. It's great. You get science proofed against a horrible pandemic. You're much less likely to get sick. You're much less likely to transmit the disease to other people. This is great. Such a deal. That's my one nice. recommendation. My other recommendation is there's a new Star Trek show on. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's actually a couple. It's one of those. It's one of the most wonderful times of year when there's more than one Star Trek show on at a time. <laughs> Star Trek Discovery started again, but there's a kids show called Star Trek Prodigy, and I've watched the first couple episodes of it, and it's really delightful, and it feels like Star Trek, uh, and it's uh, and it's just it's a lot of fun. So Star Trek Prodigy. What um, makes it more of a kid show than any of the other Star Treks? It's um, the the new crew are y younger and they're sort of they, they've escaped from a prison planet. They've managed to steal a, an apparently abandoned Starfleet starship um, and tricked the holographic commander of it, uh, who is Captain Janeway from Star Trek Voyager. Um, same the the actress um, doing the voice. So it's kids sort of doing it and they're kind of learning lessons, uh, but you know, whatever original series, they were all, they're always learning lessons too. So I don't, I don't mind that too much. Um, and it's just gorgeous, you know, 3d animation. Um, and Ooh, it's all, animated. Yeah. And, and it's a cartoon and it's, uh, it's, cool. just, it's been a lot of fun so far. So that's my recommendation. Nice. So it sounds like after someone gets their booster shot, if they're just experiencing some temporary mild side effects, they should watch the new Star Trek. You just... can, if you, if you feel a little achy, 
Yeah. You can have some Star Trek for a treat. Why not? <laughs> Lauren, what's your recommendation? I second the booster. Go get your booster shot, folks, if you're eligible for it. Um, and then when you are um, relaxing on the couch later, when you have a moment, I recommend watching Stanley Tucci's Searching for Italy on HBO Max. I'm really keeping consistent here with the HBO Max recommendations, so you can tell it. I really want um, me and everyone who I've given my password to um, to, really, <laughs> to really get the most out of this $14.99 per month. Um, it was actually really funny. The other day, I, I, I got a notification that someone else had logged into my HBO account. And, um, and then the next morning, I woke up to a text from a friend on the East Coast who I hadn't spoken to in several months. And she was like, oh, by the way, I used your HBO login. I was like, I gave it to you too. I just give it to everyone. But anyway, um, anyway, searching for Italy, what was I saying? Oh, yes. So you know, if you're feeling like me right now and you haven't been able to travel as much as maybe you would like to have over the past couple of years for obvious reasons, feeling a little bit of wanderlust and you're just looking for like wonderful food porn um, with uh, the dashing Stanley Tucci uh, leading the way, then I really recommend checking out Searching for Italy. I've only watched the episode so far on his visit to Naples. There are a few more. I just downloaded all of them so I can watch them offline. I'm, I'm, I can't wait. I can't. Wait. I have a flight coming up, so I can't wait just to like binge this on the plane and like dream of like I don't know gelato and pizza and all the good stuff. <laughs> Stanley Tucci and Stanley Tucci, obviously. Yeah, what's not to like? Yes. Uh, HBO Max has the best back catalog of movies of any streaming service because they have the MGM and the Warner Brothers back catalogs because of deals with Turner Classic Movies and all the just the weirdness of where HBO is and the media ecosystem and you go to their what their classics are and it's just if it's 11 o'clock forget about going to bed until three because you're going to find something and it's great it's really they have a bunch of uh, Criterion stuff too yeah that's right not uh, not as much as the Criterion channel (laughs) they have more (laughs) but you know they have they have some hits for sure and Mike, what is your recommendation, aside from the Criterion channel? All right. This week, I want to recommend a newsletter. It's from the New York Times. It's called The Veggie, and it is a food newsletter. So I guess technically it's from New York Times Cooking. But it's written every week by uh, the food writer Tejal Rao, the the James Beard Award-winning food writer Tejal Rao, uh, who writes about vegetarian food and vegan food. So it's just chock full of great vegetable recipes, vegetarian recipes, um, veggie versions of famous things, you know, like beef stroganoff and um, chicken chicken and dumpling soup. Uh, so it has, uh, over the last few weeks, really filled my head with all kinds of great ideas for Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is obviously the great eating holiday in the United States and probably in Canada, though I haven't asked a Canadian recently. Um, there are a lot of things that vegetarians, like, you know, the myth is that vegetarians miss out on a lot of things about Thanksgiving because Thanksgiving is all about the turkey or the ham or the sauce or whatever. Uh, But in fact, Thanksgiving is one of my favorite holidays as a lifelong vegetarian because I call it sidesgiving. And uh, (laughs) you just eat all the sides. Tajal has also the philosophy that sidesgiving is the superior vegetarian Thanksgiving. You don't need a centerpiece. You don't need to like navigate your way through a complicated lentil nut loaf recipe or like go to the store and buy a tofurkey or something just to satisfy the the centerpiece of the table all you need is just a ton of bitch sides, and she's just been delivering and it's so good so i definitely especially if, if you're into thanksgiving cooking i definitely recommend checking out the veggie you can either get it as a newsletter or you can just read it on the website if you're a new york times subscriber you have access to new york times cooking you can find it all there but it raises an interesting question, right? 
which is in vegetarianism or veganism, and you and I have talked about this before, are you trying to simulate foods that have meat in them traditionally? Mm-hmm. Or are you trying to like create some other eating experience that can be just as satisfying, just as delicious? That, that's not in question. But like, what's the mode of one's vegetarianism or veganism, right? Right. And that's that's a personal philosophy that everybody who adheres to one of those diets has, right? Like, I eat tofu sometimes, but I don't eat a lot of like fake sausages or fake burgers, right? Just because it's not something that I necessarily miss about eating meat. Um However, there is sort of like a cultural thing about the big meal, right? Like the, 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 the turkey in the center of the table that gets carved up and is like the presentation piece, right? Uh, same thing with like Christmas dinner or Hanukkah. There's always like some big thing in the middle of the table that's like the centerpiece. And, you know, her argument is you don't need that. And you may feel if you're one of those people who feels like recreating a specific kind of experience, you may feel the need for that centerpiece. And that's fine. But I'm telling you, as long as you have the sides, you don't need it. Awesome. Yeah. I'm sold. <laughs> Let's eat. <laughs> All right. Well, that is our show. Thank you, Adam, as always, for joining us. It's my pleasure. I'm always always glad to do it. It's nice to see you. And thank you all for listening. If you have feedback, you can find all of us on Twitter. Just check the show notes. This show is produced by Boone Ashworth. We want to give special thanks this week to Jane Garcia Books and Chris Kona from Wired's events team for wrangling the audio of the talk that we just listened to. We will be off next week to celebrate Sides Giving, but we will be back for a few episodes in December. So until then, goodbye. Hi, everyone. Michael from Gadget Lab here. I want to tell you about our friends over at The Big Take Podcast from Bloomberg News. Each weekday, they bring you one important story from their global newsroom, like how AI will upend your life or why China's targeting the U.S. dollar, and maybe how Joe Biden plans to take on Donald Trump. Oh boy. Check out The Big Take, a daily podcast from Bloomberg, wherever you listen.